Chapter Three, Part Two of *The Monk: A Romance*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. *The Monk: A Romance* by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter Three, Part Two. I now heard the steps of one approaching. Baptiste went towards the sound. He joined a man whom his low stature and the horn suspended from his neck declared to be no other than my faithful Claude, whom I had supposed to be already on his way to Strasbourg. Expecting their discourse to throw some light upon my situation, I hastened to put myself in a condition to hear it with safety. For this purpose I extinguished the candle which stood upon a table near the bed. The flame of the fire was not strong enough to betray me, and I immediately resumed my place at the window. The objects of my curiosity had stationed themselves directly under it. I suppose that during my momentary absence the woodman had been blaming Claude for tardiness, since when I returned to the window the latter was endeavouring to excuse his fault. However, added he, my diligence at present shall make up for my past delay. On that condition, answered Baptiste, I shall readily forgive you, but in truth, as you share equally with us in our prizes, your own interest will make you use all possible diligence. T'would be a shame to let such a noble booty escape us. You say this Spaniard is rich? His servant boasted at the end that the effects in his chaise were worth about two thousand pistoles. Oh, how I curse Stefano's imprudent vanity! And I have been told, continued the postillon, that this baroness carries about her a casket of jewels of immense value. Maybe so, but I had rather she had stayed away. The Spaniard was a secure prey, the boys and myself could easily have mastered him, and his servant, and then the two thousand pistoles, would have been shared between us four. Now we must let in the band for a share, and perhaps the whole covey may escape us. Should our friends have betaken themselves to their different posts before you reach the cavern, all will be lost. The ladies' attendants are too numerous for us to overpower them. Unless our associates arrive in time, we must needs let these travellers set out to-morrow without damage or hurt. "'Tis plaguy unlucky that my comrades who drove the coach should be those unacquainted with our confederacy. But never fear, friend Baptiste, an hour will bring me to the cavern.' It is now but ten o'clock, and by twelve you may expect the arrival of the band. By the by, take care of your wife. You know how strong is her repugnance to our mode of life, and she may find means to give information to the lady's servants of our design. Oh, I am secure of her silence. She is too much afraid of me and fond of her children to dare to betray my secret. Besides, Jacques and Robert keep a strict eye over her, and she is not permitted to set a foot out of the cottage. The servants are safely lodged in the barn. I shall endeavour to keep all quiet till the arrival of our friends. Were I assured of your finding them, the strangers would be dispatched this instant. But, as it is possible for you to miss the banditti, I am fearful of being summoned by their domestics to produce them in the morning. And suppose either of the travellers should discover your design. Then we must poniard those in our power, and take our chance about mastering the rest. However, to avoid running such a risk, hasten to the cavern. 
the banditti never leave it before eleven, and if you use diligence, you may reach it in time to stop them. Tell Robert that I have taken his horse. My own has broken his bridle and escaped into the wood. What is the watchword? The reward of courage. Tis sufficient. I hasten to the cavern. And I to rejoin my guests, lest my absence should create suspicion. Farewell and be diligent. These worthy associates now separated. The one bent his course towards the stable, while the other returned to the house. You may judge what must have been my feelings during the conversation of which I lost not a single syllable. I dared not trust myself to my reflections, nor did any means present itself to escape the dangers which threatened me. Resistance I knew to be in vain. I was unarmed and a single man against three. However, I resolved at least to sell my life as dearly as I could. Dreading lest Baptiste should perceive my absence and suspect me to have overheard the message with which Claude was dispatched, I hastily relighted my candle and quitted the chamber. On descending I found the table spread for six persons. The baroness sat by the fireside. Marguerite was employed in dressing a salad, and her stepsons were whispering together at the further end of the room. Baptiste, having the round of the garden to make ere he could reach the cottage door, was not yet arrived. I seated myself quietly opposite to the baroness. A glance upon Marguerite told her that her hint had not been thrown away upon me. How different did she now appear to me! What before seemed gloom and sullenness, I now found to be disgust at her associates and compassion for my danger. I looked up to her as to my only resource— Yet, knowing her to be watched by her husband with a suspicious eye, I could place but little reliance on the exertions of her good will. In spite of all my endeavors to conceal it, my agitation was but too visibly expressed upon my countenance. I was pale, and both my words and actions were disordered and embarrassed. The young men observed this, and inquired the cause. I attributed it to excess of fatigue and the violent effect produced on me by the severity of the season. Whether they believed me or not, I will not pretend to say. They at least ceased to embarrass me with their questions. I strove to divert my attention from the perils which surrounded me by conversing on different subjects with the baroness. I talked of Germany, declaring my intention of visiting it immediately. God knows that I little thought at that moment of ever seeing it. She replied to me with great ease and politeness, professed that the pleasure of making my acquaintance amply compensated for delay in her journey, and gave me a pressing invitation to make some stay at the castle of Lindenburg. As she spoke thus, the youths exchanged a malicious smile, which declared that she would be fortunate if she ever reached that castle herself. This action did not escape me, but I concealed the emotion which it excited in my breast. I continued to converse with the lady, but my discourse was so frequently incoherent that, as she had since informed me, she began to doubt whether I was in my right senses. The fact was that, while my conversation turned upon one subject, my thoughts were entirely occupied by another. I meditated upon the means of quitting the cottage, finding my way to the barn, and giving the domestics information of our host's designs. I was soon convinced how impracticable was the attempt. Jacques and Robert watched my every movement with an attentive eye, 
and I was obliged to abandon the idea. All my hopes now rested upon Claude's not finding the banditti. In that case, according to what I had overheard, we should be permitted to depart unhurt. I shuddered involuntarily as Baptiste entered the room. He made many apologies for his long absence, but he had been detained by affairs impossible to be delayed. He then entreated permission for his family to sup at the same table with us, without which respect would not authorize his taking such a liberty. Oh, how in my heart I cursed the hypocrite! How I loathed his presence who was on the point of depriving me of an existence at that time infinitely dear! I had every reason to be satisfied with life. I had youth, wealth, rank, and education, and the fairest prospects presented themselves before me. I saw those prospects on the point of closing in the most horrible manner, yet was I obliged to dissimulate and to receive with a semblance of gratitude the false civilities of him who held the dagger to my bosom. The permission which our host demanded was easily obtained. We seated ourselves at the table. The baroness and myself occupied one side. The sons were opposite to us, with their backs to the door. Baptiste took his seat by the baroness at the upper end, and the place next to him was left for his wife. She soon entered the room, and placed before us a plain but comfortable peasant's repast. Our host thought it necessary to apologize for the poorness of the supper. He had not been apprised of our coming. He could only offer us such fare as had been intended for his own family. But, he added, should any accident detain my noble guests longer than they at present intend, I hope to give them a better treatment. The villain! I well knew the accident to which he alluded. I shuddered at the treatment which he taught us to expect. My companion in danger seemed entirely to have got rid of her chagrin at being delayed. She laughed and conversed with the family with infinite gaiety. I strove but in vain to follow her example. My spirits were evidently forced, and the constraint which I put upon myself escaped not Baptiste's observation. "'Come, come, monsieur, cheer up,' said he. "'You seem not quite recovered from your fatigue. "'To raise your spirits, what say you to a glass of excellent old wine, which was left me by my father? "'God rest his soul. He is in a better world. "'I seldom produce this wine, but as I am not honoured with such guests every day,' This is an occasion which deserves a bottle. He then gave his wife a key, and instructed her where to find the wine of which he spoke. She seemed by no means pleased with the commission. She took the key with an embarrassed air, and hesitated to quit the table. "'Did you hear me?' said Baptiste, in an angry tone. Marguerite darted upon him a look of mingled anger and fear, and left the chamber. His eyes followed her suspiciously till she had closed the door. She soon returned with a bottle sealed with yellow wax. She placed it upon the table and gave the key back to her husband. I suspected that this liquor was not presented to us without design, and I watched Marguerite's movements with inquietude. She was employed in rinsing some small horn goblets. As she placed them before Baptiste, she saw that my eye was fixed upon her, and at the moment when she thought herself unobserved by the banditti, she motioned to me with her head not to taste the liquor. She then resumed her place. 
In the meanwhile, our host had drawn the cork, and, filling two of the goblets, offered them to the lady and myself. She at first made some objections, but the instances of Baptiste were so urgent that she was obliged to comply. Fearing to excite suspicion, I hesitated not to take the goblet presented to me. By its smell and color, I guessed it to be champagne, but some grains of powder floating upon the top convinced me that it was not unadulterated. However, I dared not to express my repugnance to drinking it. I lifted it to my lips and seemed to be swallowing it. Suddenly, starting from my chair, I made the best of my way towards a vase of water at some distance in which Marguerite had been rinsing the goblets. I pretended to spit out the wine with disgust and took an opportunity, unperceived, of emptying the liquor into the vase. The banditti seemed alarmed at my action. Jacques half rose from his chair, put his hand into his bosom, and I discovered the haft of a dagger. I returned to my seat with tranquillity, and affected not to have observed their confusion. "'You have not suited my taste, honest friend,' said I, addressing myself to Baptiste. "'I never can drink champagne without its producing a violent illness. I swallowed a few mouthfuls ere I was aware of its quality, and feared that I shall suffer for my imprudence.' Baptiste and Jacques exchanged looks of distrust. "'Perhaps,' said Robert, "'the smell may be disagreeable to you?' He quitted his chair and removed the goblet. I observed that he examined whether it was nearly empty. "'He must have drunk sufficient,' said he to his brother in a low voice, while he reseated himself. Marguerite looked apprehensive that I had tasted the liquor. A glance from my eye reassured her. I waited with anxiety for the effects which the beverage would produce upon the lady. I doubted not but the grains which I had observed were poisonous, and lamented that it had been impossible for me to warn her of the danger. But a few minutes had elapsed before I perceived her eyes grow heavy, her head sank upon her shoulder, and she fell into a deep sleep. I affected not to attend to this circumstance, and continued my conversation with Baptiste with all the outward gaiety in my power to assume but he no longer answered me without constraint. He eyed me with distrust and astonishment, and I saw that the banditti were frequently whispering among themselves. My situation became every moment more painful. I sustained the character of confidence with a worse grace than ever. Equally afraid of the arrival of their accomplices and of their suspecting my knowledge of their designs, I knew not how to dissipate the distrust which the banditti evidently entertained for me. In this new dilemma the friendly Marguerite again assisted me. She passed behind the chairs of her stepsons, stopped for a moment opposite to me, closed her eyes, and reclined her head upon her shoulder. This hint immediately dispelled my incertitude. It told me that I ought to imitate the baroness, and pretend that the liquor had taken its full effect upon me. I did so, and in a few minutes seemed perfectly overcome with slumber. So cried Baptiste, as I fell back in my chair. At last he sleeps. I began to think that he had scented our design, and that we should have been forced to dispatch him at all events. And why not dispatch him at all events? inquired the ferocious Jacques. Why leave him the possibility of betraying our secret? Marguerite, give me one of my pistols. A single touch of the trigger will finish him at once. And supposing, rejoined the father, Supposing that our friends should not arrive to-night, 
a pretty figure we should make when the servants inquire for him in the morning. No, no, Jacques, we must wait for our associates. If they join us, we are strong enough to dispatch the domestics as well as their masters, and the booty is our own. If Claude does not find the troop, we must take patience and suffer the prey to slip through our fingers. Ah, boys, boys, had you arrived but five minutes sooner, the Spaniard would have been done for, and two thousand pistolas our own. But you are always out of the way when you are most wanted. You are the most unlucky rogues. Well, well, father, answered Jacques, had you been of my mind, all would have been over by this time. You, Robert, Claude, and myself, why, the strangers were but double the number, and I warrant you, we might have mastered them. However, Claude is gone. Tis too late to think of it now. We must wait patiently for the arrival of the gang, and if the travellers escape us to-night, we must take care to waylay them to-morrow. True, true, said Baptiste. Marguerite, have you given the sleeping draught to the waiting women? She replied in the affirmative. All then is safe. Come, come, boys. Whatever falls out, we have no reason to complain of this adventure. We run no danger, may gain much, and can lose nothing. At this moment I heard a trampling of horses. Oh, how dreadful was the sound to my ears! A cold sweat flowed down my forehead, and I felt all the terrors of impending death. I was by no means reassured by hearing the compassionate Margarita exclaim, in the accent of despair, Almighty God, they are lost! Luckily, the woodman and his sons were too much occupied on the arrival of their associates to attend to me, or the violence of my agitation would have convinced them that my sleep was feigned. "'Open! Open!' exclaimed several voices on the outside of the cottage. "'Yes, yes!' cried Baptiste joyfully. "'They are our friends, sure enough. Now then, our booty is certain. Away, lads, away! Lead them to the barn. You know what is to be done there.' Robert hastened to open the door of the cottage. But first, said Jacques, taking up his arms, first let me dispatch these sleepers. No, 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 replied his father. Go you to the barn, where your presence is wanted. Leave me to take care of these and the women above. Jacques obeyed and followed his brother. They seemed to converse with the newcomers for a few minutes, after which I heard the robbers dismount and, as I conjectured, bend their course towards the barn. So that is wisely done, muttered Baptiste. They have quitted their horses that they may fall upon the strangers by surprise. Good, good. And now to business. I heard him approach a small cupboard which was fixed up in a distant part of the room and unlock it. At this moment I felt myself shaken gently. Now, now, whispered Marguerite. I opened my eyes. Baptiste stood with his back towards me. No one else was in the room, save Marguerite and the sleeping lady. The villain had taken a dagger from the cupboard and seemed examining it whether it was sufficiently sharp. I had neglected to furnish myself with arms, but I perceived this to be my only chance of escaping, and resolved not to lose the opportunity. I sprang from my seat, darted suddenly upon Baptiste, and, clasping my hands around his throat, pressed it so forcibly as to prevent his uttering a single cry. You may remember that I was remarkable at Salamanca for the power of my arm. It now rendered me an essential service. 
Surprised, terrified, and breathless, the villain was by no means an equal antagonist. I threw him upon the ground. I grasped him still tighter. And, while I fixed him without motion upon the floor, Marguerite, resting the dagger from his hand, plunged it repeatedly in his heart till he expired. No sooner was this horrible but necessary act perpetrated than Marguerite called on me to follow her. "'Flight is our only refuge,' said she. "'Quick, quick, away!' I hesitated not to obey her. But, unwilling to leave the baroness a victim to the vengeance of the robbers, I raised her in my arms still sleeping, and hastened after Marguerite. The horses of the banditti were fastened near the door. My conductress sprang upon one of them. I followed her example, placed the baroness before me, and spurred on my horse. Our only hope was to reach Strasbourg, which was much nearer than the perfidious Claude had assured me. Marguerite was well acquainted with the road and galloped on before me. We were obliged to pass by the barn where the robbers were slaughtering our domestics. The door was open. We distinguished the shrieks of the dying and the imprecations of the murderers. What I felt at that moment language is unable to describe. Jacques heard the trampling of our horses as we rushed by the barn. He flew to the door with a burning torch in his hand and easily recognized the fugitives. "'Betrayed! Betrayed!' he shouted to his companions. Instantly they left their bloody work and hastened to regain their horses. We heard no more. I buried my spurs in the sides of my courser, and Marguerite goaded on hers with the poniard which had already rendered us such good service. We flew like lightning and gained the open plains. Already was Strasbourg's steeple in sight when we heard the robbers pursuing us. Marguerite looked back and distinguished our followers descending a small hill at no great distance. It was in vain that we urged on our horses. The noise approached nearer with every moment. "'We are lost!' she exclaimed. "'The villains gain upon us.' "'On! On!' replied I. "'I hear the trampling of horses coming from the town.' We redoubled our exertions, and were soon aware of a numerous band of cavaliers who came towards us at full speed. They were on the point of passing us. "'Stay! Stay!' shrieked Marguerite. Save us, for God's sake, save us! The foremost, who seemed to act as guide, immediately reined in his steed. "'Tis she! Tis she!' exclaimed he, springing upon the ground. "'Stop, my lord, stop! They are safe! Tis my mother!' At the same moment, Marguerite threw herself from her horse, clasped him in her arms, and covered him with kisses. The other cavaliers stopped at the exclamation. "'The Baroness Lindenberg!' cried another of the strangers eagerly. Where is she? Is she not with you? He stopped, on beholding her lying senseless in my arms. Hastily he caught her from me. The profound sleep in which she was plunged made him at first tremble for her life, but the beating of her heart soon reassured him. God be thanked, said he. She has escaped unhurt. I interrupted his joy by pointing out the brigands who continued to approach. No sooner had I mentioned them than the greatest part of the company, which appeared to be chiefly composed of soldiers, hastened forward to meet them. The villains stayed not to receive their attack. Perceiving their danger, they turned the heads of their horses and fled into the wood, whither they were followed by our preservers. In the meanwhile, the stranger, whom I guessed to be the Baron Lindenberg, 
after thanking me for my care of his lady, proposed our returning with all speed to the town. The baroness, on whom the effects of the opiate had not ceased to operate, was placed before him. Marguerite and her son remounted their horses, the baron's domestics followed, and we soon arrived at the inn where he had taken his apartments. This was at the Austrian Eagle, where my banker, whom before my quitting Paris I had apprised of my intention to visit Strasbourg, had prepared lodgings for me. I rejoiced at this circumstance. It gave me an opportunity of cultivating the baron's acquaintance, which I foresaw would be of use to me in Germany. Immediately upon our arrival, the lady was conveyed to bed. A physician was sent for, who prescribed a medicine likely to counteract the effects of the sleepy potion, and after it had been poured down her throat, she was committed to the care of the hostess. The baron then addressed himself to me, and entreated me to recount the particulars of this adventure. I complied with his request instantaneously, for in pain respecting Stefano's fate, whom I had been compelled to abandon to the cruelty of the banditti, I found it impossible for me to repose till I had some news of him. I received but too soon the intelligence that my trusty servant had perished. The soldiers who had pursued the brigands returned while I was employed in relating my adventure to the baron. By their account I found that the robbers had been overtaken. Guilt and true courage are incompatible. They had thrown themselves at the feet of their pursuers, had surrendered themselves without striking a blow, had discovered their secret retreat, made known their signals by which the rest of the gang might be seized, and, in short, had betrayed every mark of cowardice and baseness. By this means the whole of the band, consisting of near sixty persons, had been made prisoners, bound and conducted to Strasbourg. Some of the soldiers hastened to the cottage, one of the banditti serving them as guide. Their first visit was to the fatal barn, where they were fortunate enough to find two of the baron's servants still alive, though desperately wounded. The rest had expired beneath the swords of the robbers, and of these my unhappy Stefano was one. Alarmed at our escape, the robbers, in their haste to overtake us, had neglected to visit the cottage. In consequence, the soldiers found the two waiting women unhurt and buried in the same death-like slumber which had overpowered their mistress. There was nobody else in the cottage except a child not above four years old, which the soldiers brought away with them. We were busying ourselves with conjectures respecting the birth of this little unfortunate when Marguerite rushed into the room with the baby in her arms. She fell at the feet of the officer who was making us this report, and blessed him a thousand times for the preservation of her child. When the first burst of maternal tenderness was over, I besought her to declare by what means she had been united to a man whose principles seemed so totally discordant with her own. She bent her eyes downwards, and wiped a few tears from her cheek. "'Gentlemen,' said she, after a silence of some minutes, "'I would request a favor of you. You have a right to know on whom you confer an obligation.' I will not, therefore, stifle a confession which covers me with shame, but permit me to comprise it in as few words as possible. I was born in Strasbourg, of respectable parents. Their names I must at present conceal. My father still lives and deserves not to be involved in my infamy. If you grant my request, you shall be informed of my family name. A villain made himself master of my affections, and to follow him I quitted my father's house. Yet, though my passions overpowered my virtue, 
I sank not into that degeneracy of vice, but too commonly the lot of women who make the first false step. I loved my seducer, dearly loved him. I was true to his bed. This baby and the youth who warned you, my lord baron, of your lady's danger, are the pledges of our affection. Even at this moment I lament his loss, though tis to him that I owe all the miseries of my existence. He was of noble birth, but he had squandered away his paternal inheritance. His relations considered him as a disgrace to their name, and utterly discarded him. His excesses drew upon him the indignation of the police. He was obliged to fly from Strasbourg, and saw no other resource from beggary than an union with the banditti who infested the neighboring forest, and whose troop was chiefly composed of young men of family in the same predicament with himself. I was determined not to forsake him. I followed him to the cavern of the brigands, and shared with him the misery inseparable from a life of pillage. But though I was aware that our existence was supported by plunder, I knew not all the horrible circumstances attached to my lover's profession. These he concealed from me with the utmost care. He was conscious that my sentiments were not sufficiently depraved to look without horror upon assassination. He supposed, and with justice, that I should fly with detestation from the embraces of a murderer. Eight years of possession had not abated his love for me, and he cautiously removed from my knowledge every circumstance which might lead me to suspect the crimes in which he but too often participated. He succeeded perfectly. It was not till after my seducer's death that I discovered his hands to have been stained with the blood of innocence. One fatal night, he was brought back to the cavern, covered with wounds. He received them in attacking an English traveller whom his companions immediately sacrificed to their resentment. He had only time to entreat my pardon for all the sorrows which he had caused me. He pressed my hand to his lips and expired. My grief was inexpressible. As soon as its violence abated, I resolved to return to Strasbourg to throw myself with my two children at my father's feet and implore his forgiveness, though I little hoped to obtain it. What was my consternation when informed that no one entrusted with the secret of their retreat was ever permitted to quit the troop of the banditti, that I must give up all hopes of ever rejoining society and consent instantly to accept one of their band for my husband? My prayers and remonstrances were vain. They cast lots to decide to whose possession I should fall. I became the property of the infamous Baptiste. A robber who had once been a monk pronounced over us a burlesque rather than a religious ceremony. I and my children were delivered into the hands of my new husband, and he conveyed us immediately to his home. He assured me that he had long entertained for me the most ardent regard, but that friendship for my deceased lover had obliged him to stifle his desires. He endeavored to reconcile me to my fate and for some time treated me with respect and gentleness. At length, finding that my aversion rather increased than diminished, he obtained those favors by violence which I persisted to refuse him. No resource remained for me but to bear my sorrows with patience. I was conscious that I deserved them but too well. Flight was forbidden. My children were in the power of Baptiste, and he had sworn that if I attempted to escape, their lives should pay for it. I had had too many opportunities of witnessing the barbarity of his nature to doubt his fulfilling his oath to the very letter. 
Sad experience had convinced me of the horrors of my situation. My first lover had carefully concealed them from me. Baptiste rather rejoiced in opening my eyes to the cruelties of his profession, and strove to familiarize me with blood and slaughter. My nature was licentious and warm, but not cruel. My conduct had been imprudent, but my heart was not unprincipled. Judge, then, what I must have felt at being a continual witness of crimes the most horrible and revolting. Judge how I must have grieved at being united to a man who received the unsuspecting guest with an air of openness and hospitality at the very moment that he meditated his destruction. Chagrin and discontent preyed upon my constitution. The few charms bestowed on me by nature withered away, and the dejection of my countenance denoted the sufferings of my heart. I was tempted a thousand times to put an end to my existence, but the remembrance of my children held my hand. I trembled to leave my dear boys in my tyrant's power, and trembled yet more for their virtue than their lives. The second was still too young to benefit by my instructions, but in the heart of my eldest I labored unceasingly to plant those principles which might enable him to avoid the crimes of his parents. He listened to me with docility, or rather with eagerness. Even at his early age he showed that he was not calculated for the society of villains, and the only comfort which I enjoyed among my sorrows was to witness the dawning virtues of my Theodore. Such was my situation when the perfidy of Don Alfonso's postillon conducted him to the cottage. His youth, air, and manners interested me most forcibly in his behalf. The absence of my husband's sons gave me an opportunity which I had long wished to find, and I resolved to risk everything to preserve the stranger. The vigilance of Baptiste prevented me from warning Don Alfonso of his danger. I knew that my betraying the secret would be immediately punished with death, and however embittered was my life by calamities, I wanted courage to sacrifice it for the sake of preserving that of another person. My own hope rested upon procuring succor from Strasbourg. At this I resolved to try, and should an opportunity offer of warning Don Alfonso of his danger unobserved, I was determined to seize it with avidity. By Baptiste's orders I went upstairs to make the stranger's bed. I spread upon it sheets in which a traveller had been murdered but a few nights before, and which still were stained with blood. I hoped that these marks would not escape the vigilance of our guest, and that he would collect from them the designs of my perfidious husband. Neither was this the only step which I took to preserve the stranger. Theodore was confined to his bed by illness. I stole into his room, unobserved by my tyrant, communicated to him my project, and he entered into it with eagerness. He rose in spite of his malady, and dressed himself with all speed. I fastened one of the sheets round his arms and lowered him from the window. He flew to the stable, took Claude's horse, and hastened to Strasbourg. Had he been accosted by the banditti, he was to have declared himself sent upon a message by Baptiste, but fortunately he reached the town without meeting any obstacle. Immediately upon his arrival at Strasbourg, he entreated assistance from the magistrate. His story passed from mouth to mouth, and at length came to the knowledge of my lord the baron. Anxious for the safety of his lady, who he knew would be upon the road that evening, it struck him that she might have fallen into the power of the robbers. 
he accompanied theodore who guided the soldiers towards the cottage and arrived just in time to save us from falling once more into the hands of our enemies here i interrupted marguerite to inquire why the sleepy potion had been presented to me she said that baptiste supposed me to have arms about me and wished to incapacitate me from making resistance it was a precaution which he always took since as the travellers had no hopes of escaping despair would have incited them to sell their lives dearly the baron then desired marguerite to inform him what were her present plans i joined him in declaring my readiness to show my gratitude to her for the preservation of my life disgusted with the world she replied in which i have met with nothing but misfortunes my only wish is to retire into a convent but first i must provide for my children i find that my mother is no more probably driven to an untimely grave by my desertion my father is still living he is not an hard man perhaps gentlemen in spite of my ingratitude and imprudence your intercessions may induce him to forgive me and to take charge of his unfortunate grandsons if you obtain this boon for me you will repay my services a thousandfold both the baron and myself assured marguerite that we would spare no pains to obtain her pardon and that even should her father be inflexible she need be under no apprehensions respecting the fate of her children i engaged myself to provide for theodore and the baron promised to take the youngest under his protection the grateful mother thanked us with tears for what she called generosity but which in fact was no more than a proper sense of our obligations to her she then left the room to put her little boy to bed whom fatigue and sleep had completely overpowered the baroness on recovering and being informed from what dangers i had rescued her set no bounds to the expressions of her gratitude she was joined so warmly by her husband in pressing me to accompany them to their castle in bavaria that i found it impossible to resist their entreaties during a week which we passed at strasbourg the interests of marguerite were not forgotten in our application to her father we succeeded as amply as we could wish the good old man had lost his wife he had no children but this unfortunate daughter of whom he had received no news for almost fourteen years he was surrounded by distant relations who waited with impatience for his decease in order to get possession of his money when therefore marguerite appeared again so unexpectedly he considered her as a gift from heaven he received her and her children with open arms and insisted upon their establishing themselves in his house without delay the disappointed cousins were obliged to give place the old man would not hear of his daughter's retiring into a convent he said that she was too necessary to his happiness and she was easily persuaded to relinquish her designs but no persuasions could induce theodore to give up the plan which i had at first marked out for him he had attached himself to me most sincerely during my stay at Strasbourg, and when I was on the point of leaving it, he besought me with tears to take him into my service. He set forth all his little talents in the most favorable colors, and tried to convince me that I should find him of infinite use to me upon the road. I was unwilling to charge myself with a lad scarcely turned of thirteen, who I knew could only be a burden to me. However, I could not resist the entreaties of this affectionate youth, who in fact possessed a thousand estimable qualities. With some difficulty he persuaded his relations to let him follow me, and that permission, once obtained, 
he was dubbed with the title of my page. Having passed a week at Strasbourg, Theodore and myself set out for Bavaria in company with the Baron and his lady. These latter, as well as myself, had forced Marguerite to accept several presents of value, both for herself and her youngest son. On leaving her, I promised his mother faithfully that I would restore Theodore to her within the year. I have related this adventure at length, Lorenzo, that you might understand the means by which the adventurer Alfonso d'Alvarada got introduced into the castle of Lindenburg. Judge from this specimen how much faith should be given to your aunt's assertions. End of chapter 3, part 2 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista